In the 60s and into the 70s, there was an explosion in the British pop music business as the Beatles broke up and bands such as the Rolling Stones, The Who, Led Zeppelin and many others rose to prominence. It was the start of a cultural revolution that continued over the next few decades. Live music audiences got more demanding and wanted to see concerts that were dramatic and spectacular. This is the story of how, as the music industry evolved, artists and bands took to the road to tour the UK, Europe and America to satisfy those demands, as told by some of the people that made it happen. The worlds of theatre and television collided, and in the vanguard was a small group of people in a London company that helped pioneer rock and roll lighting and visual production. Welcome to your very own Backstage Pass. <laughs> When we left Brian Croft in May 1973, at the end of the last episode of Backstage Pass, a series of podcasts about the birth and growth of the London-based rock and roll lighting and production company, which I witnessed firsthand, he had resigned from the Shaw Theatre and gone to join John Brown at their new company, ESP Lighting, in the Wandsworth Road in London. Brian takes up the story. What happened within a few days of me sitting in my office in Wandsworth Road, office, I say, joke, um, a, we didn't have an office, but I did have a desk, I think. And within a few days, I got a call a yet again from the Stones saying, would I like to do a European tour? It was intended to be a repeat of the successful 1972 American tour. So I find myself as a sort of de facto production manager for the Rolling Stones. The English crew were all of ESP's finest. It was a successful tour, smooth running. We did proper rehearsals in um, the Ahoy Sports Stadium in uh, Rotterdam proper production rehearsals and then we opened the tour I think in in Vienna came back to Rotterdam later so it was a, a longish tour and it went actually very smoothly and was within budget and all the things that it should be and uh, I went back at uh, ESP <laughs> and the Rolling Stones rolled again rolled away from me again. Jimmy Barnett, who was also to become caught up in the Rolling Stones' rock and roll circus, was one of the early members of the lighting company's crew. ESP Lighting got the contract for uh, the rank organisation in London who owned uh, most of the Odeon chain of cinemas. Uh, they, they were losing money on lots of them and they decided to turn three into rock venues, which were the Sundown Theatres. One in Brixton, one in Mile End and one in Edmonton. And uh, ESP had the contract for lighting, you know, doing band lighting for those venues, which I did was the sort of crew chief of, and consequently I became the default house designer. So going to all three theatres and lighting lots of different bands for sort of one night each, and they would come in and do one show like Slade. You know? Point where Tom Shoesmith from Joe's Lights from the Rainbow was there, and after the show, he came up to me and he said, that's the best lighting I've seen in a long time. So I 
had a sense of confidence from that and, and thought maybe I could probably be quite good at this. You know, I was 22. I was just a boy, really. And this turned out to be the start of a massive journey, which would take me around the world several times over the next 10, 15 years as sort of lighting crew, lighting designer and production manager. Jeremy Tom, who at the time was working at Theatre Projects, a lighting design and equipment hire company in London, was another who joined ESP in those early days. Terry the van driver, the most influential person in London theatre at the time, came in one day and said, there's someone I want you to meet, come with me, and took me to ESP to meet with Brian. We chatted for a moment, said, well, thank you very much, and I went back to Theatre Projects and got a phone call some point shortly after that saying, we've got a client who's interested in a theatrically trained lighting designer, you want to go on the road? And I went, hell yeah. So ended up at ESP and I guess it was early 73. So Jeremy joined the crew for a tour with the Osmonds. Out on the road with Donnie and Marie and it was fabulous, a completely new experience. And uh, they treated me very well and I got, in comparison to theatre wages, I was being paid a lot more and it was like, this seems like a very good idea. What could possibly go wrong? When Chipmunk came from the United States for the Rolling Stones 73 tour, he bought American equipment with him, including monster follow spots called Super Troopers. ESP Lighting bought some of these, and the job of running them often fell to Jeremy Tong. They were beasts, and because they were carbon arcs, they took a certain amount of fairly finicky adjusting. It became a fairly skilled operation to get the brightest light out of a super trooper. The maintenance of those things was a refined art. Super troopers were also key in a groundbreaking way of lighting pioneered by Chipmunk for the Rolling Stones. A lightweight mirror spanning the width of the stage was hung high above the band. Super trooper follow spots were then mounted on a gantry at the back of the stage facing the audience, each with its own operator, and the mirror could then be tilted at an angle to reflect the beam of the super troopers down onto the individual members of the band. It had never been done in the UK or Europe before, and Brian Croft called it a stroke of genius. The mirror tour was a breakthrough. It was a brilliant idea. Frank Andrews, who was also on the Stones tour, remembers the mirror well. Yes, and it worked very well in the fact that the spotlight throw was quite short, so you got a very intense light on whoever you were on. I used to follow Mick Jagger, and I think there was two of us on Mick. The guy never stopped moving, so it was like continuous, you know, pulling the thing around. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he was quite, quite, you know, you had to concentrate to follow him, that's for sure. So I used to set it up every show, and you had to get... It just right. You had to get a certain tilt between each section, so there was a little bit of overlap, and so you didn't lose anything. And that was quite tricky, but it was it was in a frame, and it usually went quite well. The, the dramatic effect from of a spotlight throwing from right at the back of the auditorium all that way down, it was that was lost. So that was a shame in a way. Another person who joined at about this time was Patrick Woodruff who was to go on to carve a name for himself as one of the world's top lighting designers. The Rolling Stones are currently one of his clients. But at that time, he worked with the Osmond brothers. At ESP, the only real sort of lighting designing I did, the first show that I was officially called the lighting designer was 
the Osmonds. In those days, you didn't really have lighting designers. You kind of had somebody would choose to do the lights. And I did the lights that night or, or for that tour with the Osmond brothers. I remember doing a big show at Earl's Court where he, where Donny Osmond flew out over the audience on a Foy's rig. It was one of the most exciting things I've ever seen in my life to this day. We'll hear more of Patrick Woodruff and his brother Simon, who went on to make a name for himself beyond the rock and roll business, in later episodes. Another early arrival with ESP Lighting was Jimmy Barnett, who we've heard from before in earlier episodes. Jimmy also worked as the Stones lighting designer and with other major bands and artists. So after the Rolling Stones tour, the two Bs, if you like, from ABBA, Bjorn and Benny, had come to some of the Rolling Stones shows. And the next thing I know, I'm getting a, a, a phone call at the ESP office saying, hello, Jimmy, this is Sweden calling. And it was a, it was a call to ask if I could, or Brian and I could work on the ABBA's first live shows since they're kind of storming into the UK pop charts in 74 so this was late 76 and i went on to tour with or do all of their tours really with patrick doing the second round of tours with me so abba was great i mean they were wonderful to work with really nice people a complete change from the stones of course and one of the things i recall was australia so abba were we were like royalty when we went out there at the beginning of 77. It was, it was nuts. We arrived at the airport and there were thousands and thousands of, of fans and they weren't screaming kids. This was adults as well. And that continued right throughout the, the Australia tour and it was good fun. And kind of the next kind of band I got involved with big time was Queen. And that started in early 79 and I did, uh, oh, I toured, did every tour they did until the end of 82 or maybe even later, but around then. And they were wonderful, you know, they were sort of polished, professional, solid band, always good. Freddie Mercury, for me, was just a consummate stage performer. I, I don't think I ever heard him hit a bum note. He was just on point all the time. people to work with they like me we got great feedback good rapport brian may actually said to me at one point oh jimmy when you do the lights i play better which was a big compliment riley o'connor who had worked with the stones on their show at nebworth also has fond memories of working with queen we didn't tour europe we just did the uk and they did all the like the civic halls great thing about it is that uh, they were interested in all sorts of things to try and you know a new look i can remember seeing genesis and they started using lasers and i thought boy it'd be interesting to see if we could get lasers incorporated in the queen show so i contacted these guys who had these laser lab went out to see them they had these portable lasers very very safe i guess unless you pointed them directly into somebody's eye but could stand in front of them nothing would happen and brought them out to the rehearsals freddie loved them but uh brian may said no they were too dangerous freddie was i have to say was the most gentle interesting performer i worked with he was really always interested in the safety seemed to really took a, a shine to the lighting crew because they were always like up in the air or something he'd always ask to see if it was safe to come on stage when we're when we're focusing lights really really great guy loved them and brian was a real stickler for perfection 
and wanting a certain look and uh, and how it felt. So I understood his concerns about lasers, but uh, they were they were a lot of fun to work with. But we're getting ahead of ourselves in the ESP story. The big name bands that Jimmy Barnett and Riley O'Connor spoke of were only on ESP's books because John Brown was building the business and signing up new clients on an almost daily basis. Over the next few years, ESP Lighting's client list was to read like a roll call of rock royalty. It's certainly true that we uh, ended up providing lighting and production services to really most of the major performers in the 70s. But uh, at the beginning, again, it, it all came back down to Chip, Monk and connections that came through him. People began to hear about us and our ability to do lighting. But more importantly, when uh, the lights had been tried out for the Crosby, Stills, Nash concert at the Royal Albert Hall, the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young would have been managed in the UK by a company called MAM, Music Artists Management. And they were an extremely powerful management and agency group in the music business, had been in it for a long time and had acts probably made a lot of money out of acts like Tom Jones and Engelbert Humpentink and other more middle-of-the-road performers but they also represented a great number of very important American acts when they came to Europe somehow the word spread and that was that was the beginning of us having a relationship with MAM and doing many of their acts so I mean basically got to the point where uh, there was a guy there called Barry Dickens who looked after many of these American acts and when the American acts were coming if they in as, as things went along sometimes they brought their own lights but if they didn't we were nearly always given the contract to uh, to do the lighting for their their performers other other ways things developed was again Brian's relationship with Peter Rudge who was the tour manager of the Rolling Stones rather more important role than the name suggests and he he at the next stage uh, went on to joint manage the who for a while and again through that link I got involved with the who primarily to be involved in lighting quadrophenia in its early stages and the other source of business for us uh, a company that did security called artist services who also got into a bit of trucking they were very well connected with MAM and they again looked after a lot of American acts when they toured and through their uh, our relationship with them we ended up doing David Cassidy and the Osmonds. Lots of people heard about us so we got approached by different bands. In the early days it was the the bands themselves were not overly interested in production uh, and it was management who decided that they needed production um, for all sorts of different reasons obviously primarily when playing large arenas the the environment is so unpleasant that you need to add lighting to make it into a show and so we would always in the early days negotiate with managers uh, rather than with the band in the early days because the music business was a mu an, in an industry that generated a lot of cash it attracted some very colorful people as managers some were absolutely delightful and entirely honourable. Others were less delightful and less honourable. 
And there was one in particular whose business model seemed to be that, uh, well, you, you first of all have to understand that the basic business model of the, the music business was for us was we would get 50% of the total cost of the lighting for the tour up front, which was critical for us because we needed it for cash flow, uh, for buying any new equipment that was needed to keep, the, keep uh, paying the crew and all the rest of it and then we would normally get the rest of it the balance of the 50% at the end of the tour obviously longer once we went for stage payments but there was one particular manager who's, who's as I said whose basic approach to this was give you the 50% and he had never he had no intention ever of paying you the other 50% so despite Brian's determined efforts to, to get paid we never did get the final 50% on, on one particular venture. Let's break off to hear from Robin Elias, who started with ESP as a crew member and then worked as a lighting designer before going on to Gidea Heights to be a rigging expert. Robin had better luck than John with a contract that he signed. At the end of my career as a lighting person, or toward the end of it, I'd done a couple of tours with quite a well-known band as lighting crew chief and the lighting designer left. So I was persuaded to become the new lighting designer, a job I knew nothing about. I had no interest in it, and I suspected I'd be absolutely useless at it. However, they twisted my arm and persuaded me to accept, and we shot off to do a two-week tour of America. So I turned up, and I did the lights every night, and indeed, I was absolutely useless. On the return to the UK after the tour, I was summoned to the band's manager's office, and he said... I've got good news and bad news for you. And I said, OK, shoot. And he said, you're fired. Um, and I said, so what's the good news? And he said, when you came in prior to the tour and signed the contract, you signed the wrong contract. You signed a band contract instead of a crew contract. Consequently, because you turned up for every show, I owe you this. And he handed me a cheque for an astonishingly large amount of money. So ironically, during 40 or 45 years of my career, the two weeks I was paid best for were the two weeks where I did something that I was absolutely useless at. I've always thought that was rather amusing. Let's pick up with John Brown again, one of the company's founders, telling us more about the finances of ESP Lighting. Based on what I know now, which is rather more about running businesses than I did then, our, our fundamental problem was that we were undercapitalized. And of course, this is why most businesses fail if you don't have enough working capital. And our industry was very working capital intensive. You were constantly needing to buy new equipment uh, as well as the running costs. So we basically had to rely on the cash flow from the advance payments to enable us uh, to keep running. To begin with, we were, we, were going, we were earning hundreds of pounds a night. Then we would have various tours on the, you know, several tours on the road at the same time. So our income was growing. Uh, and of course, by the time we got to the Rolling Stones, it was in the budget was in the hundreds of thousands of pounds at the 1976 tour. So that gives you an indication of from 150 pounds a night to a tour that was, you know, several hundred thousand pounds. The competition was intense. Uh, there wasn't any right. I mean, at the beginning, there was only one other company, Entech, because very soon 
people saw, lots of people saw there were an opportunity in this business. And one mustn't underestimate the impact of the Rainbow Theatre. In 1971, the guys from the Fillmore East in New York came to London and opened up a rock concert theatre, the converted cinema in Finsbury Park, uh, which had a very high level of production. The guys from America came over and and installed a very comprehensive lighting and sound system. And this again had an impact on bands wanting lighting, but it also had an impact on the number of people who wanted to get into lighting. Other conventional lighting rental companies tried to get into part of the business. Then the sounds companies realized that they were losing money that they could be earning because they weren't doing lighting. So Electrosound and Joe Brown's Tasco got into lighting. So I would have thought that by the end of the five years from two companies, there must have been at least 10 UK-based companies offering lighting. And to that, you then had to add the fact that uh, more and more of the acts started to bring lighting over from America. So we would see Shoko turn up uh, in, in Europe. So it was, a, it was a very competitive business. It kept a lid on the price, which was a problem, uh, particularly because of the need of constant reinvestment in new equipment because the technology was constantly changing. Uh, we, we really never made any money over, I mean, we never made any significant profits because we were constantly funneling the money back into the business. I mean, we, we were obviously successful. The fact that we didn't have disposable profits wasn't a big issue because Brian and I were the majority shareholders. But others saw a potential for consolidating the industry. So in at the end of towards the end of 1976, beginning of 1977, I was brought, made aware by Brian that uh, a city finance company was prepared to finance the acquisition of three separate companies, ESP, Electrosound, the sound system company based down, actually based down the road near Borough Market, and Tom Field Associates, who were based in Boston. And this uh, city finance organization put the deal together and purchased all three companies and merged them into one. Whilst it had been extremely exciting being involved in running this business, it had also been very tough. You know, we were we were involved in some of the biggest concerts of that era, and every one of them had to go on, and everything had to work. So whilst I was disappointed to leave the entertainment industry, and it, for some reason it didn't occur to me to stay in it, uh, in in. I took the money, which gave me the opportunity to become a, a sort of entrepreneur, and I invested in a number of different businesses, and uh, some of those have done rather well over the years. So I, I moved on. Would I have liked to have stayed in the entertainment business? Uh, possibly, but probably not in the world of rock and roll. So it's time for us to fade to blackout. But in the next episode, we'll bring the lights up again and hear about how some of our crew came to be working with ESP Lighting, what it was really like to go on the road and work with some of the biggest bands and artists in the business, about Frank Sinatra's lighting board blowing up, and how a race across London in a sports car 
save the day. Backstage Pass is a podcast miniseries produced by Chris Smith and Christian Swain, edited by Jerry Danielson, and is a joint production with Pantheon Podcasts, the home for music lovers. We look forward to having you back on our journey. Until then, remember to keep the lights on. Thank you.